and welcome. I'm Ben Schultz. I'm Nora Schultz. And you're listening to Trying to Adapt, and today we're trying to adapt to A Christmas Carol, the 1951 movie version starring Alastair Sim as Ebenezer Scrooge. This movie is also known simply as Scrooge. I feel like we should get it out of the way right now that this is the version that both of us grew up with. Like, we watched this, I would say, several Christmases in a row. Most years, we would, like, Christmas Eve, we would go to eat at Olive Garden, and then we would come home and watch this. So, even while I was reading A Christmas Carol, this was the version that was kind of, like, imprinted on my psyche. People who haven't grown up with this version might, like, think that certain things are weird that we don't, because that's just how I'm used to seeing the story. But we'll try to give it as fair a shake as possible. On the other hand, we also haven't seen this in, like, a couple years, I think. Yeah, I forgot a lot of weird parts. So there's a lot of parts that, like, whoa, I don't remember that. So, first off, we watched, like, the DVD version of this. Normally, we just, like, find whatever we're looking for on YouTube. The back of the DVD case says that there have been at least eight movie versions of A Christmas Carol... Which is not factually wrong. It's true. There is this our been, is this our eighth one? This is our eighth episode. This is our eighth one, so it is factually true. So this starts off with a kind of beautiful framing device that seems to apl- There's a shelf of um, Dickens books, and a disembodied hand pulls the Christmas Carol one off the shelf and opens it up, and then it's the opening credits. This seems to imply that all of the other Dickens books, if you did the same thing, you would get like a similar movie adaptation. It's entirely possible that the same production company made, like, other adaptations of other Dickens books. That would be cool. If not, it's a little disappointing to have that as your, like, framing device that I don't think it comes back at the end. It, it almost seems like kind of a very early 2000s DVD menu kind of gimmick, like you, you take the hand with your cursor and you make it, like, go onto one of the books and then you click it and then it plays that book. Yeah, it's kind of like 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 a 2000s like kids educational game. And in keeping with the book theme, this one actually includes the opening spiel about Marley being dead pretty much to the word. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. Uh, one of the first scenes we get is Scrooge is walking out of the London Exchange and a poor man named Samuel Wilkins comes up to him he clearly has like a debt that needs to be paid and he can't pay it and he's asking scrooge not even for forgiveness but just to delay the payment for a little while so he can get the money and scrooge being you know a nasty asshole refuses now the one thing that i noticed about this scene is that scrooge when he was young he had a business partner named dick wilkins uh one of his fellow apprentices at fezziwigs It made me wonder if this could possibly be like a relative of his, even though it definitely is not remarked on in the movie. There are, um, there are a lot of like added minor characters in this one that have fantastic names. So you're going to want to keep an ear out for those. I like Scrooge in this version a lot. That's going to come up a lot. But one thing that I really like about Scrooge in this version is that None of his meanness is compromised, but at the same time, like, he's mean for very, like, logical, practical, economic reasons, you know? Like, he doesn't turn this guy's debt down and, like, yell at him and, like, threaten to beat him with his cane or whatever. 
when this man asks him for forgiveness, he's just solely thinking about money and business. He's not mean for the sake of being mean. Right. I think far too often Scrooge's meanness is kind of separate from his job, in part because we don't really get a sense of what Scrooge does. Like, we see him, like, writing in a book. That's, like, the most indication yeah, that we get. Yeah, he's just kind of a vague Victorian businessman. But here, his meanness is actually, like, attached to his job. Because in pretty much every version, it's strongly implied, if not outright stated, that the reason why he's such an asshole is because he's devoted so much of his time and energy to business, ignoring all other aspects of his life. That's why his fiance dumps him. Not just because he's an asshole, but specifically because he's become um, this like strictly business-like mind. Yeah, and I think that also makes this particular adaptation more explicitly anti-capitalist than some others, which is more in keeping with Dickens' original intention, I think. Yeah, because here is not just, don't be a mean old guy, it's the mean aspects of Scrooge that are being directly attacked are the ones that directly stem from his occupation. Dickens wasn't a radical. <laughs> the idea isn't like you can't be a moral businessman, because the idea of being a moral businessman is personified in Fezziwig, but... I like here, a lot of adaptations, I think, just completely divide Scrooge's meanness and his lack of morality, and Scrooge is also rich and a miser and owns a business. Now, that being said, in this adaptation, we still don't really get a good sense of what exactly Scrooge does as part of owning this business. Maybe that's for the better, though. We know that people owe him debts. I kind of like that being vague, because then it, I think it implicates more people. But then he also says his business occupies him constantly, which is kind of laughable if we don't know what that business really is. Fair enough. But I do think that, like, if Charles Dickens made Scrooge's job too specific, then I think that kind of lets some people off the hook, you know? So, for whatever reason, Scrooge's nephew Fred is named Nick in this version. However, one thing that I like about Nick, I guess we'll call him, is that apparently he knows Bob Cratchit well enough that, like, he directly asks him when he comes to the office, like, oh, how's Tiny Tim doing? I like that. That's sweet. Which is interesting because in most adaptations, we're pretty much explicitly told that Scrooge doesn't know how Tiny Tim is doing. Yeah, I guess like during this conversation, the words Tiny Tim just kind of like completely go through one ear out the other. He's too busy thinking about numbers. One thing I did miss in this scene is um, Bob Cratchit like applauding after... Fred slash Nick speaks because I think that would be especially fitting here that like they know each other on a personal level but whatever Scrooge complains why did you marry against my wishes which is weird I think this is kind of imp later on this isn't a spoiler but um later on too when Scrooge's sister is dying and says like take care of my boy to Scrooge, after he's walked out of the room, we'll get to that. It seems to imply that either, like, something has happened to her husband, or she just doesn't trust him, or whatever. Like, maybe she just knows that he's irresponsible. So, I think Fred's, or Nick's, mother can't 
be asked for permission. Um, and we have no idea what's going on with Scrooge's brother-in-law, but it doesn't seem good. So, in that case, I guess Scrooge probably would be, like, the the person it would be respectable to ask. In this particular version, I think they made a real effort to actually have, like, period-accurate British accents rather than just generic ones. And you see it, like, particularly in the fact that everyone pronounces the word clerk as Clark. You a clerk and 15 shillings a week with a wife and a family talking about a Merry Christmas. I think it's cool. There's a lot of, like, very attention to period and as well as place. Like, I feel like the London that we see in this version, I think, feels a lot more real. Like, there's a fairly extended scene where Tiny Tim is, like, looking in a toy window and we look at all these very creepy Victorian toys. Well, at first glance, it seems like an unnecessary scene. I think it's just good world building. There's also a lot I of... Think, I think that part with Tiny Tim, I really liked that because I think for the most part, Tiny Tim is a very kind of one-dimensional character. And it's nice to see a scene where, like, he is the subject rather than just, like, part of the furniture. I feel like too often Tiny Tim is just there as, like, moral support. Like, the scene where he's looking at the toy shop window shows that, like, Tiny Tim has his own aspirations and his own, like, like, he's not happy about the fact that he's poor. I like that it gives that little moment, um, as well as helping to establish the setting, also gives Tiny Tim, like, I don't know if I'd say character motivation, but more of a personality. I know I said I'd bring this up again, but I just really like this version Scrooge. I know I prefaced this by saying that maybe I'm a little biased because this is, like, the version of Scrooge that is ingrained in my mind, but I just think that Alistair Sims brings so many, like, little aspects of Scrooge's character. Like, he's not just a mean old man. Like I said before, like, he's mean for very specific reasons, and you can see how certain things have affected him. One specific moment that I like in this version is, so in the original book, there's, like, a bit about how blind men and their dogs, like, run away in fear from Scrooge. In the book, it's intended as a metaphor and not something that, like, actually happens on a regular basis to Scrooge. But in this version, we actually see it depicted. Yeah, it's a great moment. It's one I've been thinking about for the last eight years of my life, um, on and off. Once again, this is an adaptation that pretty much takes all of its dialogue from the book. We don't see a lot of, because this is on the longer side for adaptations, being an hour and a half, we really don't see... Too many things deleted from the original story. Instead, we see the addition of extra scenes. The scene where Scrooge comes home um, is pretty intact. One kind of weird um, Scrooge moment, even though overall I like this Scrooge very much, is that when he sees Marley in his door knocker, he seems like almost like he seems more angry at him for being there than he is afraid. Yeah. I kind of interpreted that as him, like, being afraid and then, like, trying to redirect it into anger. Like what they say about bullies. <laughs> that's that's a fair point. Yeah, no, it wasn't a bad moment. I would just kind of... I found it a little confusing. But that makes sense as an explanation. 
Um, so then Scrooge goes in, um, he's sitting by the fire, he's eating his fourth meal of soup. As Marley appears, the background music almost becomes, like, triumphant. Like, this movie, I think, plays the ghosts less as, like, horror, which I like for its own purpose. But in this version, the ghosts are largely portrayed as very as a very positive thing that's happening to Scrooge. Um, so even when Marley appears, being as scary as he is, the background track is there to be like, it's okay. This is a good thing. Uh, just a few notes about the scene with Jacob Marley. This is a thing in all adaptations, the thing about the undigested bit of beef. That's not, like, a thing, is it? Like, indigestion doesn't make you randomly hallucinate. Yeah, I mean, I have self-diagnosed IBS. As bad as my stomach aches have gotten, I don't think I've ever had a moment where I just start hallucinating um, because I couldn't digest, like, a Dairy Queen shake or something. Then there's the bit with the toothpick, which is in the book. Most adaptations don't bother with it because it doesn't really make any sense. They just decided to leave it in. It's kind of a funny moment, though. It is funny, and I guess it, I guess it's justified in the sense that, like, Scrooge doesn't know how to react to all of this. Uh, but it is, like, a little pointless because it's like, you see this toothpick? Like, what? what's he trying to prove? Well, yeah, because he just said it's a toothpick. So if he's trying, like, like um, if, even if Marley can't see the toothpick, he'll be like, yeah, you're holding a toothpick because he just said that's what he's holding. Um, I also like Scrooge's desperation when he's like, You're not looking at it! But I see it, notwithstanding. I like this Jacob Marley because I like how quickly he goes from being, like, totally emotionless to freaking the fuck out. Um, he's not the best Jacob Marley because we already saw the best Jacob Marley in the last episode. But I like him nonetheless. And I also like the inclusion of the there's more gravy than grave in you at the indigestion part. That's one of my favorite lines from the book. And not only does Marley get, like, super melodramatic, I mean that as a positive for the most part, as he's talking to Scrooge about mankind being his business, but Scrooge also gets super melodramatic here and starts, like, hiding his face in his coat, and I really liked that. This is something that, like, I always pay attention to in every adaptation, if you haven't noticed by now. But when Marley starts talking about how you will be visited by three spirits... He says the first will arrive at one o'clock, and then he just stops there. And I honestly think that that's probably the best way to do it. Now, he's not prepared necessarily for, like... Because in this one, it's pretty smooth from, like, okay, after the first ghost is done with him, then the second ghost is there right away, and the third ghost even interrupts, like, in the middle of the second ghost's hallucination, pretty much. Um, or at the very least, like, it's seamless. Like, he doesn't wake back up in his bed between those two. I like that pacing-wise, because then otherwise you just kind of get these weird moments where we cut back and Scrooge in his bed just kind of waiting for the clock to chime. This version has Marley explicitly state, I can't remember if this is from the book, but at the very least here, Marley explicitly says that, like, he's the one who secured this, like, sweet deal for Scrooge, and I like that. You are going to hear me later on talk about how I think that Marley and Scrooge are particularly homoerotic in this version, but I like that Marley, he's, he's looking out for him. 
we don't know what exactly he had to do in order to secure this like experience for Scrooge. But it's it's nice to know that he's still thinking about him after all these years. I also like <laughs> once again we have Marley telling Scrooge he's going to be visited by spirits. Marley being a spirit himself and Scrooge responds with like, "What ghosts?" Like he's clearly frightened by the concept of being visited by ghosts as if it isn't happening to him right now. It just seems offensive. Yeah, Marley's like, what? Is it? Is it so bad to see your best friend again? Speaking of them being best friends, this one doesn't include, like, that kind of weird, kind of sweet, kind of sad moment where Marley talks about how, like, he spends a lot of his time just, like, standing next to Scrooge watching him. However, we do get more Marley in this version. Pretty much all I was going to say is that, and this is from the book as well and from several other adaptations, but I just like the the concept that instead of, like, ghosts being tormented and, like, wanting to cause harm to humans, that instead, like, the greatest pain in being a ghost would be not being able to help people that, like, no other living people are helping. I like that concept. Good one, Charles Dickens. I don't say that very often. Yeah, so in this one, the ghost of Christmas past is not a woman, as you may have been starting to get used to. No, instead, he's just, like, old, and he's, like, kind of androgynous, because he's, he's got, got long- He's got long hair. They didn't go for the, like, the book version where he's kind of like a weird, creepy old man baby, but I like this ghost of Christmas past. He's just kind of calm and kind. Yeah, uh, there are parts where, and I noticed this, I don't think they really thought about it all that much when they were making the movie, but you can kind of notice that there are times when the Ghost of Christmas Past, like, casts a shadow, but Scrooge doesn't. Interesting. Not totally sure if that was on purpose what it's supposed to mean, but I like it. I also like that, um, by this point, as we've already seen, there have were at least one or two versions with, like, a flying sequence with the Ghost of Christmas present. But I like here instead it just cuts to like an hourglass um, representing that like, you know, he's going back in time. He's not really, he might be, he is changing locations in the sense that like he didn't grow up as a boy in the middle of London. But more importantly, the traveling that he's doing is through time, primarily not through location. You know, if anything, he's really, he's going back to his own memory. In the Ghost of Christmas past sequence, we don't see scenes that Scrooge didn't. Well, in this version, we actually do, and we're going to get to that. Starting off with Scrooge at boarding school, and his older sister, Fan, comes to collect him. Well, yeah, because they fixed that weird kind of, like, subplot where Fan seems to imply that Scrooge's dad hates him because, like, he, as a baby, made his mom die in childbirth, which, you know, it's not really how it works, <laughs> but... <laughs> doesn't make sense when he has a younger sister. Because Scrooge even, like, says that she looks like her mother. Well, not just her mother, but specifically that she looks like mother in the like collective sense which wouldn't make any sense because there wouldn't be any way they could have the same mom if scrooge killed his while he was being born however this being in an era before photographs how exactly does he know what his mother who died when he was being born would look like are they rich enough to be able to afford like 
Yeah, he's probably seen a painting. That's. But like, I don't think he. I don't think he was like rich growing up. I mean, he's rich enough to go to boarding school. This was still the time where like not many people could be educated. You know, Scrooge got a small loan of whatever the equivalent of a million dollars would be. The reason, if you think that we like cut right to the scene with um, Scrooge's sister, we didn't, they did. Like, we don't really, once again, we don't really get the scene of Scrooge just kind of being yawn and lonely. Um, Which makes sense in this particular version because I think they make a very specific point about the fact that Scrooge's meanness is not rooted in his childhood. Yeah, it exactly. It comes in later. Because even in the book, like, it, it seems kind of weird to put so much emphasis on Scrooge being lonely as a kid, when he still seems to have a pretty active and healthy social life when he's with Fezziwig. You know, like, this clearly hasn't had, like, a big imprint on him unless it's kind of, like, been repressed and comes out later or whatever. Yeah, here, this makes sense because he's still, like, a nice young man pretty much up until the point where he starts getting super into business. And then we see Scrooge with his fiancée at the Fezziwig party. And it makes no difference that I'm poor. I love you because you're poor. Which is weird. Not only does he say that, but he immediately follows it up with like, I love you because you're poor, not proud and foolish. There's a lot of like, there's a lot to unpack there, historically, thinking in terms of like, misogyny and classism. I don't really feel like getting into it right now because I just came home from a long day of school. <laughs> but yeah, you can mull over that line um, as much as you want. He proposes to her, and um, I think her name is Alice in this, right? And he's like, oh, Alice, and she's like, Ebenezer, and I did write down, and I'm really sorry, guys, imagine saying that name during sex. This is the happy part of Scrooge's life. But even so, he's like, I've seen enough. I won't look anymore. Yeah, it is a little... I mean, I guess it makes sense because he knows... Like, maybe it hurts more to see these happy moments because he knows how sad they're going to get in, like, five minutes. But overall, I will say about this whole chunk of the movie, because it takes up a pretty decent chunk, um, a lot of the, like, extra runtime in this version comes from how much time we spend on the Ghost of Christmas Past scenes. I feel like these extra scenes of Scrooge's backstory, like, they seem like natural additions. You know, it yeah. doesn't change Scrooge's character. It only, like, it basically just fills in the blanks that the reader probably came up with. With, like, oh, well, right before Alice broke up with him, I bet, like, he um, probably wasn't working for Fezziwig anymore at that point. You know, like, these are natural, logical conclusions that we can come to, and here we just see them played out. These are additions to the story that seem natural. And I have to commend, you know, the producers of this movie for that because, like, they succeeded in trying to pad in some new scenes into this movie without, like... If you just watched this movie, I don't think you would easily be able to say, like, well, this is obviously the original part and this is the part that you guys came up with. Oh, yeah, for sure. And even when I read A Christmas Carol, because I've seen this version so many times... I was like, wait, I thought that, like, Scrooge's backstory, like, go, like, I thought this section of the story goes on for longer. If you didn't know the book super well, it would be hard to differentiate between what was added specifically for this version and what's always been part of Scrooge's story. Like, this really shows the at attention to detail, where, um, in a lot of these backstory scenes for Scrooge, we get a lot of, like... <laughs> 
like um early mid 1800s like business talk like things that people were probably legitimately talking about kind of at, like in the dawn of industrialization i think they're clearly trying to say that like fezziwig's business model did not survive the industrial revolution Maybe that's not such a great addition because it kind of implies that, like, you can't be Fezziwig anymore. That period of history is over now, which is, I think, the exact opposite of the point that Fezziwig's whole character is supposed to make. Yeah, I also think that this, as much as I like the, like, 1800s business talk, I think it, because, like, there's a line where Scrooge is like, Perhaps the machines aren't such a good thing for mankind after all. Which, while it is a sick line... I think it almost seems to kind of romanticize this, like, pre-industrial vision of labor, which a lot of times was just as bad. <laughs> this obviously gets, like, on a very, very off-to-the-side track, and the movie doesn't really get into it. This is kind of something that you would really only think about if you're analyzing it later. But this theme that's, like, very gently inserted into the story... Um, that Charles Dickens really never touches on at all, almost seems to suggest that, like, industrialization is, like, the cause of, um, business owners, like, hardening their hearts, which I don't know if that's necessarily, like, I, I would argue that capitalism itself is the issue, more so than, like, how that capitalism is carried out. Like, I think as you said, like, there can be Fezziwigs regardless of what, like, form labor takes on. And there can also be Scrooges, um, regardless of, like, how industrial the economy we're talking about is. Or in this case, there can be Jorkins. And I think this inserted scene, you know, it has its problems, but I think it also does contribute something important, which is that it kind of gives us an idea of how exactly Scrooge came around to becoming, you know, this mean, nasty guy. You have Fezziwig kind of representing the moral businessman that Scrooge becomes at the end of the movie, but you also have him as being the rival of another businessman, Mr. Jorkin, who argues that all of this compassion that Fezziwig shows for his employees and for everyone in the community uh, is ridiculous and he'll never get anywhere. And it is true that Fezziwig's business fails and Jorkin ends up taking it over. I think clearly what they're trying to suggest here is like, Scrooge saw this kind of drama play out in real time where he had a boss who was nice to everyone and then that boss failed. Well, yeah, because I mean, in the book, we just kind of cut from the Fezziwig scene to like Alice telling him off for becoming greedy, which like this isn't shown. And obviously like these scenes just kind of help to fill in those blanks that the reader is probably already filling in. But I just, I really appreciate this adaptation for showing us specifically how and why, like, Scrooge didn't become another Fezziwig. Right. I think it's important that we get to see Scrooge as a young, nice, happy man being told by the world, by his life story, that that kind of attitude of compassion and kindness will not get you anywhere in the world of business, which is exactly what Scrooge comes to believe. And this also ties in perfectly with Alastair Sims' like, present-day Scrooge not being mean for the sake of being mean, or not necessarily because he, like, on an emotional level, hates people. 
Um, but instead, because he's been trained to think like a businessman, and specifically like a Mr. Jorkin type of businessman, you know, that he had positive intentions, and that he could have them again, but that he's been blinded to, like, the kinder instincts in him by, like, very ruthless business practices. So, we move on from there to the scene where Scrooge's sister, Fan, dies. Which is really only kind of implied in most versions. We do know that she dies. We don't. It's mentioned. We don't see her dying. We don't get any details. And this is actually an important moment for this particular Scrooge. Because we find out that his sister wanted to tell him something as she was on her deathbed. And why exactly did he walk away? I think he thought she was already dead. So, or maybe he was just too, like, caught up in emotion or yeah, okay. that sort of... But anyway, he walks away without ever knowing that what she wanted him to do, her last wish, was for him to take care of her son, his nephew Nick. Okay, so if this is the scene that you were referencing where, like, this is something that Scrooge wasn't there for, mm-hmm. I'm just going to provide maybe, like, an alternate interpretation of this scene. I don't necessarily agree with one viewing of this scene over another, but I just thought of this. That the ghost of Christmas past, when Fan says this as Scrooge is watching, old present-day Scrooge, um, the ghost of Christmas past says, you heard her. Which I think alternatively could be interpreted as, like, Scrooge left the room at the time, but maybe, like, he was still, like, standing outside and could hear her say to look after, in this case, Nick. And so that he feels guilt for knowing that, or maybe, like, even if he didn't hear fans say these words specifically, that, like, this is what he always guessed she would have said. Um, if Scrooge had known in-universe that something was going on with Fan's husband, which we, as the viewer, don't really get filmed it on, but it seems like there's something going on there if she's asking her brother to take care of her son, that Scrooge can figure that, like, Fan would want him to take care of her son, but either, you know, because, like, his heart has become so hardened, because he's so busy with his business, because he doesn't really have much, like, already by this point, as we see with his fiance, he doesn't have much like emotional energy left in him that he ignores this. And obviously, too, he also could be feeling guilt just for not knowing about this at all. And the ghost of Christmas past, I assume, would totally have the power to show him something that he wasn't there for. Right. I guess basically the point that I'm trying to make here is that if we're trying to figure out whether these ghosts are real or whether he's dreaming all of this, the fact that the ghost of Christmas past can show him something that he never personally saw in real life definitely puts a point in the column of the ghosts are real. Yeah, but I mean, of course, as it's pretty much impossible to prove that anything is reality or just simply being perceived, you know, it's entirely possible that Scrooge is dreaming all of this, including, like, the Ghost of Christmas present scene. Like, this is what he's assuming Cratchit's home life looks like. Maybe, and this is getting pretty deep into, like, just kind of analyzing the story in general. Um, maybe, you know, like, he's heard about Tiny Tim, but he's, like, ignored that information. He's repressed it. He, like, he doesn't want to think about it until then, like, his subconscious mind finally confronts him with an image of Tiny Tim. And that, that kind of gets to the heart of analyzing the entire story. 
Um, so that's not really, like, specifically touched upon in this adaptation. But again, I think it's just something interesting to think about when thinking about, like, what the ghosts can and can't do and whether or not they really exist. Uh, so we actually get to see Jacob Marley as a living, not totally young, but, like, probably late 20s, 30s something man. Yeah, I mean, we see basically Scrooge and Marley meet and become business partners under the supervision, sort of, of um, Mr. Jorkin. Scrooge and Marley kind of immediately have a conversation about, like... The world is on the verge of new and great changes, Mr. Scrooge. Some of them, of necessity, will be violent. Do you agree? Oh, I think the world's becoming a very hard and cruel place, Mr. Marley. One must steel oneself to survive it not be crushed under with the weak and the infirm. I think we have many things in common, Mr. Scrooge. Which I think is a good way of putting what becomes Scrooge and also presumably Marley's like life philosophy and shows how Scrooge and Marley really sort of thought as a pair. As I said earlier, Mr. Jorkin takes over Fezziwig's shop. Scrooge and Marley are basically like very closely involved with running this company by this point. So they are in charge of, like, making all these decisions about what's to be done with the existing employees. Pardon the liberty, but do you know if I'm to be kept on here, sir? What's your present salary? Five shillings a week, sir. You can stay for four shillings a week. Well, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Which is an interesting moment just numerically because we know that Cratchit is getting 15 shillings a week. So maybe just, like, inflation has really hit Victorian London hard, or... It's kind of clearly shown that, like, this is supposed to be the same business as Scrooge is running and having Bob Cratchit working there in the present. But it seems like they have a lot more employees in the past, whereas, you know, it's clearly just Scrooge and Cratchit alone together in the present. I think, alternatively, it's possible, maybe, that, like, the company has almost kind of, like, like outsourced some of its work, maybe, to a different, like... Because it's unclear exactly what they do. Right. And I it, think doesn't, that... it doesn't seem to be suggested that, like, Scrooge, Scrooge's business has gone downhill. You know, like, I think that would be kind of an important part of his character, if that were true. Like, it seems like economically everything's going fine. If, if his company were going downhill, it would almost kind of be a, like, Adventures from the Book of Virtue situation where, like, wait, why are we getting mad at Scrooge for not being crashed enough when he can't or whatever? But that doesn't seem to be an issue. I guess that just does kind of raise the question once again of what do they do? Yeah, I think it was kind of weird to, like, show that Scrooge and Marley's business seems to have more employees than it does in the present. Like, I think that was maybe, like, an unnecessary scene that only complicates. Yeah, and then just to finish off that weird scene, we have Marley kind of, like, noticing Fezziwig across the street, and he points that out to Scrooge, and then Scrooge looks for him, but he can't see him. And I don't know what exactly that was supposed to signify. Yeah, we do just kind of get this extended shot of, like, Scrooge looking... And then we hear, like, the carriage going away, presumably with Fezziwig in it. We don't actually see him leave. And then he turns and goes in. And then when he turns and goes in, there's a very noticeable cut between two different takes of him walking into the shop. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure what this actor did where, like, <laughs> presumably he slipped and fell on something. He screwed that up real bad. <laughs>
There isn't too much to say that hasn't already been said um, in, like, other episodes about the scene with Scrooge and his fiance. Um, I like that Scrooge's fiance, Alice, in this version specifically says, um, you are changed by the hardness of the world, which I think we already kind of touched on with, like, he's not mean because he was, like, a lonely little boy, but he's mean because he's seen, you know, the hardness of the world. Like, he's seen how cruel business practice can be. So this one um, definitively takes place after 1835 because there is a quick shot where like, like we see that their business is prospering by the fact that like we see a hand place like a book for like 1834 and then like the 1835 one is like much larger showing that like Scrooge and Marley are making much more money than they did in the past. Um, so this one definitely takes place well after 1835. At least a few years. We don't know exactly. So then we get yet another added scene. There's a lot of extra scenes in the Ghost of Christmas Past sequence in this version. Yeah, like uh, I said, a decent port of, part of the runtime of this one is just the Ghost of Christmas Past. But they're good scenes. They're good additions. It's it's a It was a good choice, but it is a noticeable difference from the book and from most other adaptations where like the past, present, and yet to come are all roughly kind of equal segments. Yeah, and while some of the scenes do add, like, you know, little, like, weird complications when you think about them too hard, um, overall, like, they're, they're very logical steps in, like, yeah, this makes sense as something that would happen to Scrooge. Because then we get another scene where Mr. Jorkin gets caught embezzling money from the company, and as punishment, he's getting sent to Australia, which I don't know exactly what the point of this... I mean, clearly, like, the idea here is... If you are a mean and evil businessman, there might be consequences on Earth as opposed to when you die. But that seems to go against... It would seem to be like a reason for Scrooge not to be so greedy. Well, I think here it's more... It's not only that Mr. Jorkin is greedy, but also like he's... You know, that it's not necessarily practical to embezzle funds because you're probably going to get caught. Because as ruthless as Scrooge can be. Nothing he does is illegal. Maybe this would only, like, further cement in Scrooge's mind, you know, like, don't do anything too reckless. Don't do anything, like, for Mr. Jorkin to embezzle funds, like, this almost seems to be kind of, like, in opposed to, like, Scrooge's, like, very, like, logical meanness, like, Mr. Jorkin embezzling funds almost kind of um, seems to represent, like, a more obvious evil. This scene also gives us most of the additional characters, which they they really nailed it with the names. They feel very Dickensian. It, it makes sense that alongside Scrooge and Fezziwig, you would have Jorkin and Snedrig and Groper. Yeah, they're really fantastic names. So after this scene with, like, and of course Scrooge and Marley are sitting next to each other because they're husbands. Um, sorry. We... Then get a scene where um, Marley's, like, maid, I suppose, comes to Scrooge's office. And, like, by this point, Scrooge is basically an old man. Because then this would be the um, night seven years ago that Marley died. Because the news that the maid is bringing is that Marley isn't going to last through the night. And Scrooge is busy in his office working, so she speaks to Cratchit. Which proves that Cratchit has been working here for at least seven years. Right, and I, th I thought that was interesting because I think it's usually implied that Cratchit 
is kind of a little more temporary. His job is not necessarily very secure. I think, like, the fact that he's constantly afraid of getting fired kind of implies that he hasn't actually been there for years and years. And it also kind of seems to imply, um, again, with, like, the fact that Cratchit is the only employee. Like, really, they can't find anyone better? (laughs) No offense to Bob Cratchit, but that, like, after at least seven years, it seems to be more than seven, because in this scene, like, Scrooge um, criticizes Cratchit, like, every Christmas you ask off, you know? So if this is already a thing seven years ago, then, like, you know, maybe he's been working here for well over a decade, which, you know, again, doesn't necessarily suggest that the business is doing super great. Yeah, plus you would also kind of think that if Cratchit has been working there for at least seven years, he would be a little bit better at knowing how to avoid pissing off Scrooge as much as possible. Yeah, and you would also think that, like, at this point, Cratchit wouldn't... I mean, it does explain the fact that Scrooge is like, I I guess you'll want the day off, but, like, why does he even keep doing that routine if he's been working there for so long? I think he just makes... He just wants to make Cratchit feel bad I think about it's just fun for off. him. I think it's just fun for him to, every single year to go, I suppose you'll want tomorrow off, and he's like, well, it's Christmas. I think that's just a fun little gag they have. Yeah. After work is over. uh, Yeah, because even though the maid comes in saying, like, yeah, he's really close to dying, Scrooge is like, well, I'll visit him after work. Which you would think, like, sets up a perfect moment for Marley to die while he's not there and to say, like, oh, well, you know, his greed prevented him from seeing the last moments of his best friend. But no, he gets there and Marley is still alive. But just barely. In fact, he's clinging to life by such a thin little thread that the Undertaker is actually already there waiting, which I thought might have been intended as a metaphor for Scrooge, because the Undertaker... You don't believe in letting the grass grow under your feet, do you? Ours is a highly competitive profession, sir. I thought that seemed to me like they were trying to create a parallel between the Undertaker and Scrooge. But he pretty much only gets that one line... Well, it might be the same Undertaker as later in The Ghost of... Never mind. I think it is. I think they only cast one Undertaker. Yeah, but like even in that scene, you can't really see his whole face. So if they did only cast one Undertaker, they don't like draw attention to that fact. So I don't know if it's necessarily supposed to be a like a conscious story change. Once again, Scrooge goes to someone's deathbed and like they're trying to tell him something important and he like keeps talking over them because he did basically this exact same thing when his sister was dying she wanted to tell him like take care of your nephew and and scrooge was like no no finn you're going to live you have to live (laughs) which like yeah that doesn't help me right now ebenezer i'm trying to tell you something Um, So I just gotta say that Scrooge is real bad with this bedside manner stuff. Oh yeah, no, like, Scrooge is the last person you want coming to visit you in the hospital. Pretty much the important part about this scene is that Marley is already showing repentance for what they've done while he's dying. Obviously, he is dying, so he says it in pretty vague terms, you know, like, he just kind of whispers, like, Wrong. Huh? Wrong. 
You're just like, what does that mean? And then he just leaves because Marley dies. I don't know exactly how I feel about this edition. Um, one thing that I do like is be that then I think it makes a little bit more sense that Scrooge just seems angry when he sees Marley's ghost um, in the knocker because it almost seems like he's kind of been mulling over this and thinking like, well, if ghosts are real, he'll probably have a word to say with me later. That he seems maybe a little bit less surprised when Marley goes on about, like, mankind being his business because it already seems like he was starting to think this way as he was dying. So, this is running really long. Longer, in fact, I think, than the movie itself. There's no way I'm going to edit this all in one night. So, I'm just going to split this up into two parts. This is going to be part one, and then part two will come out later. With that in mind, I've been Ben Schultz. I've been Nora Schultz. And you have been listening to Trying to Adapt. Thank you.